0: Welcome to The Boardroom's Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting, high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of The BoardBench Companies, and I'm your host here today at The Boardroom's Best. And now it's time to charge ahead to lead, challenge, and foster the best in companies worldwide with greater courage, character, confidence, and integrity. Our guest today is Jack Devine, the founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. He is a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as the CIA. He served both as acting director and associate director of the CIA's international operations. In addition, Jack has served as chief of the Latin American division, and was principal manager of the CIA's Sensitive Projects in Latin America. He is a recognized expert in sensitive intelligence matters for the U.S. government and international corporations. During his career at the CIA, he was involved in leading, organizing, planning, and executing countless sensitive matters in virtually all areas of intelligence, including analysis, operations, technology, and management. Earlier in his career with the CIA, he served as head of the Counter-Narcotic Center, and also head of the Afghan Task Force, which successfully countered Soviet aggression in the region. Jack is the recipient of the agency's Distinguished Intelligence Medal and several Meritorious Awards. He is also known for his op-ed articles in The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, Foreign Affairs Magazine, The World Policy Journal, Politico, and The Atlantic Monthly. He is a respected guest speaker at the National Press Club and multiple media outlets including CNN, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, Fox News, C-SPAN, Bloomberg News, as well as the history and discovery channels including PBS, NPR, and ABC Radio. In the private sector, Jack has served on public and private company boards and several government and corporate cybersecurity advisory boards. Jack's book, Good Hunting, an American Spymaster story, the New York Times bestseller, focuses on his agency career and the role of covert action in the past and the future. It's an honor and pleasure to have my good friend, Jack Devine, as our guest here today on The Boardroom's Best. He's certainly among the best in the business. Hi, Jack, and welcome to The Boardroom's Best.
1: Hi, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: I always have so much fun talking to you. There's always a new story lurking around the next tree and next corner when we're getting together. We're here today to really sort of talk about what's going on in the boardroom, as we talked earlier. When you look at the corporate boardroom today, many people from my perspective and talking to them consider it a part-time job. Yet the role of the board from an investor's perspective is they really don't want to think, have a director think that this is a part-time job, really, because it's their money that's at stake. And if you're looking from your side of the director's perspective, knowing the CIA background and the investigation work that you do today and, and the corporate work that you do, what are some of the black holes that directors are missing in the work that they're doing today?
1: Nancy, I've been out for several years now, and I have my own company, and part of that effort with that company is servicing the needs of boards and companies. And I'm on a couple of boards uh, presently, and I've been on others in the past. And In response to your question, I, I mean, I think the person that thinks he goes to four meetings and looks at the stock while why he's at the meeting is stepping into very dangerous territory. I mean, pick up any newspaper today, and you can see the boards are faced with lawsuits involving their fiduciary responsibilities. And they're also facing what I would call political or social issues. I mean, misbehavior by CEOs, misbehavior by board members. So while it's only four meetings a year, On average, they need to be alert for what's going on in the company and certainly what's going on in the business world. And Above all, when you're in the realm of acquisition uh, or acquiring new people to lead your company, you need to be steeped in understanding the importance of due diligence, and it shouldn't be just a road exercise in checking the blocks.
0: Boy, we're seeing that in Washington today more than than ever before. And many people may may not consider Washington really sort of a, a director. But you couldn't really con- – I mean, you really got to look at our elected officials. They are have the biggest fiduciary duty of anybody in the world, really, when you think about it, right? So when you Especially. think about due diligence, like, you know, what, where the heck were they? You know, it's the old adage, where the, where were the directors? So you've got some pretty interesting stories on due diligence as it relates to – both foreign and domestic companies. Why don't we talk a little bit about, since the Russians are front and center today, uh, some of the work that goes on from a due diligence perspective that you've seen that corporate directors and boards have really missed even on that front.
1: I'd be glad to. Uh, I would only add... If you me. can, that is, obviously. <laughs> I, I, can, I can talk about it. But right. we'll, we're going to have to change some of the names... To, to protect, protect the, the innocent. Lives. But... Uh, but Uh, The one thing I would point out, going back to the board just a second, only the comment that if you're on the audit committee or compensation committee, you are especially vulnerable and accountable for decisions made that relate to the uh, corporate well-being. So coming back to one of the areas that I'm fascinated by, I've dealt with some corporations' hedge funds uh, ranging from mid-cap to large-cap And what is interesting is each of them approaches due diligence uh, differently. Many are steeped in it. I mean, they really have a rigorous compliance due diligence process. It starts with their own internal processes and requirements on what must be done, what checks have to take place. And then you step out into the outside world to get support because there's only so much that your internal Uh, mechanism can do for you. I would note that there's a very large number of companies. It's almost like the issue of security and cybersecurity is this is a cost, and they're reluctant to pay the cost, and they'd rather take the risk. Now, the news is replete with what happens, I mean, certainly in the cyber area recently, but over and over again, I confront problems where boards have not done the due diligence, And we have to undertake an investigation that could have been avoided if they had done it before the investment is made. The problem is the post-investigation is much more complex and requires, I'm just going to arbitrarily say, two to three times much money, if not more, to answer questions that could have been easily answered before they got involved with it.
0: Right. And it doesn't just impact the company itself necessarily or the director's liability but it actually impacts all the customers as well that might get caught up in this.
1: True? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I would state for board members they go through this process is, you know, you don't want to deal with a yellow and pink flag. I mean, you know, if you say, look, I only want to deal with a red flag. If you tell me there's a red flag, the guy's been arrested five times, we won't make the deal. And the problem is I mean, a lot of companies have gone down the path of, uh, all the negotiations and have the deal ready, and then they start the due diligence late in the process, and they're very reluctant to walk away. My best clients do it at the beginning, very early. If they see a red flag, they move on. or if, And certainly if they even see a, a yellow flag, they really want to dig down to make sure they know that that yellow flag is is really minimalist threat. But I've dealt with others, and they've paid the price further down the road. And that is, look, you know, so he's done a few of these things. That doesn't mean he's going to do it again. And they talk talked themselves into looking past the due diligence and going forward anyway and taking a risk. Sometimes you get lucky and it works out and they sell it before, you know, the chickens come home to roost. But I would encourage boards to get your due diligence process started early and don't live with, Markers that distinguish this company from a solid and good company that you know you would like to see your family invested in.
0: Right, it's the old trust, but verify. And um, to to put it a little softly, you know, once a stinker, always a stinker. Well.
1: Well, I've encountered that where we actually had a fellow come to us, and he wanted us to do a self-due diligence for corporation oh, yeah. <laughs> because he had been in prison for some willing and dealing mm. in the stock market, and he was you know, born again uh, and now has understood the, uh, the shortcomings of that, and he wanted me to certify with a costly due diligence that he was a man of a uh, reformed and upstanding citizen. We took a pass because it just didn't feel to us that the, all the spots on the leopard had disappeared. So we didn't even bother pursuing this. And lo and behold, our, our judgment turned to be wise because he did go forward, found somebody to certify it, did an IPO, and you know about a year and a half later was arrested again for mm-hmm. stock manipulation. So don't talk yourself into things. Now, we didn't uh, I got my tr- sidetracked myself there, but sure. you did ask about some of the things that you can encounter in foreign arena. And on the question of Russia, we could address China if we like. like. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, let me say the positive in the United States, why you can be schnuckered and uh, have a bad deal. There was an awful lot of record regulatory uh, oversight that chances are less um, less high that you're going to have a disaster on your hands. A bad investment is a bad investment anywhere in the world, but in terms of having trouble finding the data to make the decision, the United States is a, rel- is a relatively uh, positive environment for trying to get a handle on a company. Right. But when you go abroad, the databases, the records process is more obscure, and I'm being kind about obscure, and corruption reaps, uh, creeps into uh, many, uh, many parts of the world, and um, bribery is not uncommon, and that causes problems for U.S. firms because of our own laws, that you know our Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Right. You, you you can't engage in these activities. So, if you aren't aware of that and think that there's a way to bypass it, you're stepping on treacherous territory. And the but, temptation
0: is high for for the executives. Not too excuse me, not too long ago, there was um, a president over at Walmart. That down in, in Mexico that got caught for this. And I remember meeting with a director that knew this fellow and was interested in bringing him onto his board. And they were just waiting to see if, in fact, this was going to be an issue. And I heard the news that the fellow had been uh, taken, well, well, we'll call it taken out, <laughs> basically resigned from the company as a result As on the radio as I was going to meet this fellow. And then I, we, the conversation came up over... A glass of wine at the end of the day. And I said, uh, your decision has been made for you. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's just public news. I heard it even before I got here. So I announced to him that his best candidate was no longer his best candidate and his jaw just dropped. No idea that this would make it to the news.
1: One of the most dangerous things is when the CEOs and people on the board are bringing longtime friends. Yes. they want to bring them and introduce them into the equation. They've never done a due diligence on their friends, and there are secrets that everybody has. And Correct. maybe he's a great partner at the golf club, and he ha- looks like he ostensibly has a large amount of money. There was a famous case down in Florida. This is going back ten years was Vanity Fair and a few other places <laughs> covered it. But everybody at the country club was. This is in the. Bernie Madoff face, which was another example. of and He was a mini uh, Madoff, but he was donated money to the community and to the right. golf club. And But it was all a Potonkin village. It was a, mm. a, you know, a facade. But let me go to your question about a couple of countries and sure. types of things that you encounter. A major bank was buying a uh, an acquisition of another bank. And what I was impressed with, they wanted us to look at every member on the board, in about ten countries. I mean, this is a massive investigative effort. This is after they here. were on the board. Part. This is
0: already. This is after they were on the board, correct? Not before. No, they the were
1: about to acquire a company that had okay a branch off Branch offices being large banks in far other countries, right? So it's not their branch office like New York. Where, you know, so it was, it was an acquisition
0: due diligence.
1: Due diligence, yeah. right? So here you multiply it. Maybe you had fifty people. I think it's actually it actually was close to sixty. As I right. think about it. Now, we were not going to do the 360, but we were going to take a look. They made an investment. This is out-of-pocket money to take a look at each of the board directors. And lo and behold, uh, of the 60, and again, I'm ballparking the numbers because several years ago, uh, 59 of them looked very positive at the first blush, right? So it would be just cost prohibitive. To go much deeper, but oh this, this the 59th one, if you will, mm-hmm. it showed that person had ties into Columbia and to drug trafficking, Oops. and particularly in the money laundering. Right? So mm-hmm. the company, you know, stopped right there and said, Look, you know, we're going to do an acquisition, you're going to have to isolate, take that guy out of your board. And if not, we're not going anywhere, so I would say you know one out of fifty companies would have done the due diligence on all the board members at the what I would call tier one level. It would have been disaster if you right. could, you know think about you acquire this bank and you have you know uh, a money launderer uh, launderer in your board network
0: that's so good the second
1: thing you know when I look at uh, uh, Russia. I was impressed by one of our clients when I first started into the business, and that they had done all the books. And for many companies, it's looking at the financials or the due diligences. You know. And you say, well, look, the numbers all add up. It looks good. But this particular company was in a heavy industry, and it needed the port facilities in Russia. In other words, if the ports weren't operating, then no matter what the books said, Uh, it would be a losing proposition. So they asked us. This wasn't me coming up with a bright idea. Mm -hmm. They said, look, we want to be sure there's ports. So we want to know how, what are the the labor unions like at that port facility? Uh, Will we have to pay bribes? Are they uncontrollable? Do they, I mean, what, does the company have ties into the Kremlin so that if there's a problem in this place, can the government, uh, will the government be supportive or would they be part of the problem? A very interesting, complicated question, but it's the lifeline. So if you're sitting on the board and someone comes in and briefs a wonderful company making all this money, then you realize, um, geez, but there's some vulnerabilities here. And unless that's presented to you, you might bypass it. Turns out, Unfortunately for the company, that we were able to establish that, that they could work with the, uh, the unions and that uh, had, there had been cooperation from the company and that the government was in sync. So they went forward. It's been a profitable business since. But if they had gotten that wrong, uh, they would have lost a lot of money.
0: Right. And this is not just only exclusive to corporations who are physically located around the world, but also domestic companies that might be working with a vendor, correct?
1: Well, you we have a whole set of problems in, in that regard. Um, all companies now rely on vendors. One of the things I'm on the board of um, a major company. I'm on their advisory cybersecurity advisory board, mm-hmm. and uh, the issue that comes up there is part of your IT is outsourced to vendors. So, are the vendors who they say they are? Can they provide the the support that's needed? What's their reputation? So, again, these are all Costs that go out the door uh, for the company—it's not—it eats into the profits. But I find that the more prudent, successful, long-running companies make that investment. So in the United States, knowing, knowing the vendors, uh, knowing their record, reliability, uh, their security practices—I mean, not to get into the national security arena—but you know, NSA has been hammered. The National Security Agency, the Intercept Intelligence Agency, has been uh, hammered really hard by the likes of Snowden, right. and uh, more recently, and the name escapes me, but a fellow who also had taken classified material out of the system, and they were contractors.
0: Yeah. So, so it's, it's a lot. You
1: need to know your vendors, and you need to know the contractors involved in it.
0: So, is it more easy to have control? And I'll use the control word "control" loosely of physical, tangible assets than it is your intellectual property, which could sort of slip out the door a lot faster. And if so, or if you know if it's not easily to can more easily to control. How do you know who to trust beyond doing due diligence? Is there are there other ways to sort of dive in?
1: There was a there's an expression in the intelligence world shared among all services, friend and foe alike. Yeah, <laughs> there are no friends in the intelligence business. Okay, so. It's a bit harsh. There are friends, for sure. But what it says is, be alert. Even when you think you're on the most friendly territory, uh, bad things can happen. So intellectual property, I I think, certainly in the United States, certainly in uh, the EU, I mean, there are rules, laws, there's uh, regulatory aspects to it. I don't want to pick on the Chinese today, but they are uh, well known for loose uh, policies, Uh, for intellectual property. So if a company is going to put their facility in China and it has unique intellectual property, they need to factor into the equation that that intellectual property will be bled off of the company and it will be appearing in uh, other uh, Chinese outlets and there will be no compensation for it. And you can go into the Chinese uh, judicial system, but remember, I mean, it's still a communist state. People don't like to think about it, but it is not not—it's not the rule of law. It's not the judicial process that we have grown up with in the United States. So beware, buyer beware, and this part, I would say seller beware of your intellectual property. If you're not prepared to lose it, if it's the lifeblood of your company, this unique product, then you better do due diligence and to the environment, whatever country you choose to uh, the, to go to, it's not. You, know, you might find a place that's inexpensive labor, but if you're going to lose it all, then that is not a cost-effective way of doing business.
0: Right. There's a public story that's been on the news in years past about a manufacturer of the big wind turbine, you know, engines. And they were a U.S. company that was having a lot of their parts manufactured overseas. Again, not to pick on China, but it was being done in a low-cost environment. And then that their equipment is being sold back to a to a U.S creator actually sort of a manufacturer of, of the bigger systems and what had happened is the vendor the chinese vendor had basically stolen the intellectual capital of this company for years and they didn't know about it till all of a sudden that vendor becomes their biggest competition selling the equipment back to the the customer's main customer and basically wiped them out in in less than a year once they actually got you know their hooks into the customer the bigger customer, the global customer, and this guy had nothing he could do. There was absolutely no recourse to get his his IP back. It was gone. I, and uh, frightening to see how an entrepreneur who had built a multi-million, you know, billion-dollar company just wiped out in a matter of months.
1: Well, I would like to say this is a unique experience, but unfortunately business history in modern times demonstrates that this is a recurring a problem. I had one in the power industry. This again, going back a few right. years. But they did their due diligence. The company was uh, very productive, very uh, uh, run very efficiently, and they made the acquisition. Mm-hmm. After the company was up and running a year, they realized that thirty percent of the power was being spun off and into another another factory in the vicinity, and it turned out that the their CEO, it was his cousin in the other factory. They were both party members and uh, they were uh, tied into the local political structure in this, it uh, wasn't in Beijing, it was in the hinterland, but because of the power aspect of it. And you'd say, okay, let's go to court. Well, you're going to a system that is you know, uh, rigged against you. So, mm. You know, This goes back to my story about the, the labor unions and the unions and, uh, and the port facilities. And that is, when you're sitting on a board seat and you're looking at building a power plant and so on, you have to lean back in your chair or get help in leaning back in your chair and say, what are all the other ramifications? Where can we be bit on this thing? You know, you kick it around, you kick around with people uh, like ours that, you know, spend their – their careers, looking around the world and knowing the the culture, and having assets and capabilities around the world that enable you to answer the question: Well, we're going to buy this company. What are what are its political ties? Right. What are the risks? And the cost is truly, by board standards, uh, the due diligence. This type of due diligence far less expensive than the looking at the books and all, which is mandatory and necessary. But this is a small cost, and I guarantee you if you don't pay it up front, you pay it on the back end. Back end is painful, usually considerably more costly. So a board that f- go to a meeting four times a month, you better... Or four times a year. They don't want to do it four times a, year, you <laughs> you four hold, times a month. I, times a month. <laughs> I have a one where you have a call once a week, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so that They want you to be plugged into it. It is time-consuming, and they need to compensate accordingly, but the four times a year, those meetings have to—they um, have to be well-driven. By that, I mean it has to be an agenda. Right. You know, you're going to have dinner, you're going to have the, you know briefings. But when you get into the acquisition investments abroad, particularly, you really need to stop, uh, look, and listen, and you need to invest in collecting more information about the deal than you would normally do in, in the U.S. I would point out one more. Time that the way tr- companies get in trouble, they really think they know the people and company because they've dealt with them before. They know the minister of transportation, right. and they get in, they get lulled into this comfort, uh, uh, into this f- frame of mind that uh, makes them make what I would call a bad business decision. Right. People are getting. I'm uh, just one last note. I notice that people are getting really smart, particularly in the retail industry, in the cyberspace in other right. words they're now paying the, they're paying for the capabilities and resources, and they're bringing so much compliance into the system and I think they're developing an, it's an antibiotic an antibiotic if you will
0: ahead of the curve, so they're 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 being defensive versus offensive.
1: I like lose. doctors that practice preventive medicine. Correct.
0: All right, that, that's probably <laughs> a better term that people and understand.
1: I, and I think that's what we're part of that triage team if you will of as you are. Right. and helping boards make wise decisions that protect them from fiduciary uh uh, lawsuits.
0: Well, and ask the uncomfortable questions, because it's not something they're used to doing, you know. It, as much as directors say they are, it's doing the dive underneath the covers, so to speak, that is not particularly comfortable for them, or being able to put together questions in a way so that the people that you're interviewing, because this is what we do, sort of open up to you and start to feel comfortable, and will tell you things that you wouldn't be able to find in the past. Right. I mean, we found some amazing things about you know, potential directors that nobody... Is going to believe that we were able to get, and it's just by building a relationship of trust with the people that you're interviewing with. It just, and I've never even met in some cases. It just comes out on the phone. <laughs> it's it's fascinating and, to me.
1: And not all uh, investigative firms, not all uh, research firms, not all headhunters are the same in right. how they approach these, and do have to do the interviewing. And it's not just the references; you have to find the people that are not. Put on the list because they're more likely to tell Correct. you of aberrant behavior. The only thing on the board that I would underline is when you start this process of the inquisitive looking for the danger spots, it may be hard work at the beginning, but once a board develops, starts to develop the process and it becomes part of their culture, right. it becomes easier. And more robust just by the nature that people are used to asking tough questions because they have the experience of seeing what you find, what goes wrong. But it takes some time, and I would urge boards to do this like they were getting ready for any sort of uh, sports activity, training, getting in condition, and changing the culture. If it is one of four meetings a year, then change the culture of making those four meetings be dig-down meetings, not... Listening and
0: just, More robust.
1: Uh, signing and, and raising your hand to support whatever the decision is.
0: Yeah, and in the process of due diligence, when you're asking questions, and in this particular case, we're talking about directors, prospective directors, or maybe even a prospective C suite person. What I found is that a, a difficult question does not have to be one that is contentious or threatening. And it, it's, it's how you craft. The, the dialogue really to get at the the underlying information in a way is you find the same thing
1: well you took the words out of my, my mouth which is yeah, you know, tough questions have to be asked there's a mm-hmm. style there's a style and, and i think there's a style of doing it in a way that not everybody but it's accusatory or it's uh it's negative based. It's right. really an information based question. Have we looked at this? And if, if not, why not? And uh, why don't we think about, you know, this is a way of doing this. Most of the boards I've been on do tend to avoid conflict. So it, it isn't really, um, you don't necessarily have to go to the uh, State Department foreign policy, right course, to <laughs> understand the diplomacy of the, the boardroom. But yeah. The questions have to be asked, and sometimes frankly it you do have to you have to take a stand yes and you have to say look this is this is going to we're going to get crosswise to the s e c this is going to be an investment that's going to tank the stockholders are going to want an explanation for this the media i mean there are lots of issues, and sometimes they do come up, but you save you save your you know, your fire for for the tough ones, but the whole process mm-hmm. should be more inquisitive seeking more information.
0: Yeah, I have, a, I have another question for you, which which may or may not necessarily be directly related, but all boards still need to do their due diligence on CEOs, even if they're sitting in, in sort of their seats. If there's any question of, I don't, say, I don't want to quite use the term corruption or any question of lack of, of ethics, shall we say, in that C-suite, how do you see boards really diving in and doing their due diligence without creating sort of a a negative ripple effect, because obviously you want to cut out the situation if there is a problem immediately. But in the meantime, that's a hard job for a board to do when there is any suspicion of corruption or abuse in a C-suite. There's a certain level of trust that's there to begin with. How do you help a board really go through that process without making it contentious to
1: start with? I'm really disappointed because I thought you were going to answer that question for me. <laughs> it's one of the hardest questions.
0: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we, you, you know, it, there are ways do to that. do it, but it, you're the if you're you have, the CIA guy. So,
1: yeah. so if you have a a sitting CEO, I, I think it would be extraordinarily brave. Yes. For one of the board members to raise his hand, and said, look, I think we have to do a, a due diligence on you." Right. Now. So, I think. Uh, I'm not a, a master of, of, of this, but I mean, there may come a time where the board says, look, we should do a due diligence on all of us so that we can go before. In other words, you don't single out the CEO or the, the chairman of the board, right? Right. Now, if the CEO is on the board, it's a very, very tricky problem. If it's a chairman and he's and the CEO is not on the board, right. then I think it's an easier way to raise it, and more frankly. Now, every board member should have an alliance with the general counsel. Correct. Now, the general counsel wants to protect the company, wants to protect the CEO, but they also want to protect themselves. And they <laughs> know the law. Self-preservation. There's a way of, depends on the sort of positioning, the general, the legal counsel saying, look, we ought to have an opinion and we ought to look at ABC. Right. Once you see a, a yellow light come up on the CEO, uh, then it can be addressed Fairly frankly, but diplomatically, that look, because there is this yellow flag, it's for the good of the company, Jim or Joe, whatever his name is. You understand this has to be done, and I think you have to do it. But if you're doing it preventively and there's no red flag, no yellow flag, not even a whiff, someone has to do a finesse and say, look, you know, for the shareholders or whatever, we need to do it on everybody. And I think you need to stay, you know, I talked about compliance, I talked about fiduciary and political sensitivities on the board, but certainly legal and under having a good understanding, being briefed, making the general counsel be part of the board uh, discussions. Are there any legal issues? Anything that we need mm-hmm. to be concerned about? We've got everything covered. In other words, you put put that person on the spot to answer the tough questions, rather than necessarily confronting the CEO. But each case is uh, difficult. If it's a board member. Finds themselves in an area of possible conflict, possible jeopardy legally. Mm-hmm. The smart ones, most board members have legal counsel that they can touch. Correct. I, mean, I would, I would. That would be my first stop. Is what do you think? Am I reading too much into it? How do we best strategize this thing? Right. I wouldn't carry the water by myself.
0: Yeah. So. One sort of last question before we wrap this up is, you know, the the frontline headline news has been in in the last uh, couple of weeks about a credit monitoring agency. And uh, and the hacks that happened and what goes on. So now, you know, where where do you see some of this happening? In not to to overlook, you know, go too far on the cyber area because that's certainly a frightening area for everybody, every consumer, every director, every CEO, what it might do. But where do you see some of the big challenges going forward, or ways that directors are starting to think differently? I'm seeing some, but I'm not seeing real aggressive movement in the space of how do we really dig in to, to do the work at a better level. And, and I think part of it, quite frankly, is, is fear of time. And, you know, the term fear in the boardroom is not quite often used enough, I, not from a fear of, of loss of the company, but, you know, from fear of what they should be doing and how much time is it taking. I mean, I've even heard one chairman of a board in a number of years past said when they did get into trouble, I don't get paid enough for this. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it, when you hear that, to me, every other director <laughs> in the boardroom should be scared out of their cotton-picking wits.
1: Uh, it's true of every board member. It doesn't matter until it's, uh, until you're facing a major lawsuit, right? Right. So, you're up against the wall. But one of the things, uh, let's focus on this, this cyber part of this. What I've found uh, in, in the last couple of years, particularly, uh, boards are getting more savvy on the cyber threat. I'm, I'm afraid to say that the vast majority of boards, the IT thing is too technical, too, you know, that we got the IT. They're doing whatever they're doing. You know? Trust you. Yeah. And the boards are not involved. They, they're not briefed on it. They don't know the cyber people. They don't know what they're doing. They don't. So the better ones actually have the IT, you know, whether it's annually or semi-annually, they get a briefing Uh, this is what we're doing in the compliance IT area these are the threats, these are the attacks we've had, this is the way we're dealing with it. Board's my admonition my closing admonition to the board beyond the due diligence process which is the cornerstone, is you need to get to know your IT cyber team. You need—you don't have to be a whiz like your grandkids or your children, but you're, you're a smart business person. You'll listen to the – and you make sure you get someone who speaks in English and not cyber talk. But there is a way to make a sound decision on, on are you getting the bang for the buck. And you can get equipment, and the equipment is not necessarily the answer. Right. So. The more you get briefings, the more you understand it. And what I provide is a service, and I'm not touting this, but, you know, we provide a consulting service where a fellow that has deep, rich experience from the government, frankly, my old outfit, comes in and talks to the boards about the cyber threat. Right. And he does it as a layman. And then and the cyber team, and the, we guarantee the board is we're selling no equipment, no program. In other words, you just get the consulting because otherwise if someone comes in they're gonna tell you your machine's wrong, you need another machine, you need to do this or that.
0: They're selling you but something versus educating out. Yeah.
1: Board should get educated more about the cyber arena as it relates to their company. And I, I, I know people don't wanna over invest in time, but I to me this can be done. Relatively easy. They don't need to know the the algorithms that drive all of their sure. systems. But they need to know what what steps are we taking? How are we vetting our vendors? How, in the cyber world, how are we vetting, you know, the employees? What systems do we have? What checks and balances? Insider threat? All all these issues are now being kicked around in subcommittees. In other words, I'm on an advisory board to the board, right? But that advisory board meets and it's going over nothing but cyber. And then the general counsel is on that board with us, and he briefs the board on a regular basis on what's being done. That's a great marriage, and I would yep. I would recommend all boards that have a, a cyber profile need need to do something similar.
0: Yeah, we we worked with a very large global institution, financial institution in the past. And I remember having a conversation with the GC who said, in in response to a question, which I offered is, you know, how important is technology to you? And any company, I don't care who you are and what you do, technology, whether it be cyber or technology is related to hard goods and your, your IP in some way, shape or form is a technology company. And the response to my uh, to my question was, well, we're kind of a back of the envelope institution. In which case I die my eyes nearly popped out and fell on the floor. <laughs> so you can imagine what, what happened thereafter. Um I'm
1: not I'm not a, an investment firm, but I'd short that company. Yes, exactly. Nancy, it's, <laughs> it's been Nancy, a pleasure, Jack. Yeah, and we I'm can continue on. A pleasure talking to you as always, and uh, you know, have a great day. And thank and, you very and, much. And good hunting, as we say. Yes,
0: absolutely. You too, and and thank you, Jack. Uh, we'll we'll continue on in another call. Take care. Have a great day. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.